It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Good afternoon, everyone. Librarian Danielle Belanchet here from the Code St. Luke Public Library. Today, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a live conversation with best-selling author Julia Kelly. Thank you very much, Julia, for taking the time to speak to me today, all the way from London, England. And thank you also to Athena at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. To begin, I'll share a condensed bio. Julia Kelly is the award-winning and international best-selling author of books about ordinary women and their extraordinary stories. Her last two novels, The Light Over London and The Whispers of War, were both instant bestsellers on both the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star lists. In addition to writing, Julia has been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and for one summer, a tea waitress. Julia now calls London, England home. To learn more about her acclaimed books, you can visit her website, juliakellywrites.com. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, all the way from jolly old England. And congratulations on such an inspirational, ambitious, and heart-wrenching novel. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Before we even discuss the subject for your extraordinary novel, The Last Garden in England, I'll show you the beautiful cover right here. Let's go over a few items listed in your bio, if you don't mind. Of course. Apart from your exquisite talent for words, uh, I see listed in there Emmy-nominated producer as well as journalist and marketing professional. Can you tell us a bit about each of those experiences and how they helped shape your writing, if at all? Sure. So I was a journalist in New York City, um, where I went to graduate school for journalism um, for about nine years before I moved to London. So as part of that, I was a I was a television news producer, and that's where the Emmy nominated comes from. It actually comes from a sports documentary uh, series that I did, believe it or not, a very far <laughs> cry from writing about gardens in England and history. Um, but it's funny that you bring up uh, whether that's helped at all. I, I really think that being a journalist has been one of the most positive things uh, for my writing career, partially because if you're a journalist and you don't write, you don't eat. So <laughs> it's very motivating. Um, and it teaches you a huge amount of discipline. It, it teaches you to sit down and to write every day and um, to not be precious about writing and, and to know that sometimes you just, you just need to get the job done, which is really helpful, I think, especially in early drafts of books when you're thinking, this isn't exactly how I want it to be. I'd really love this to, to sound better. And I, I want to start editing it, but you know, you just need to write write the book and and get the book done before you can go in and kind of do the work to to edit it. Um, The other thing that's been really helpful is I I thought I was going to go into academia um, on the history side. Instead, I went into journalism. Those two things have a nice parallel in that they are pretty heavy on research and you learn very quickly how to take a huge amount of information and create a story out of it. 
and sort of figure out how to weave narrative and um, convey to somebody what uh, theme that you want to talk about or whatever it is that's important out of out of that story. So I think it's been absolutely invaluable. And um, I always love running into other authors who started their careers as journalists, because um, I find that most of us have that that same attitude of, um, you know, it, it being a really positive, beneficial thing. Yes, definitely. I believe you're, you're fact checking uh, the importance of doing so and um, discipline, definitely an important lesson for us all. Uh, the tea waitress job. What is that all about? <laughs> you know, I, I had one of these jobs where I had graduated from high school and was going to college and wanted to make some money in the summer. And so I did what so many people do and got a job waitressing. It just happened that um, this was an English tea shop in the um, hometown, in my hometown, uh, Pasadena, California, which is not usually what people think of when they think English tea. Um, but this place really specialized in doing that. So um, I, for, for three months, that's what I did. And then, of course, there's a nice bit of synchronicity and moving over to the place that that tradition came from. So now I get to, to sort of live, live the life of, um, of, uh, of an English expat, English American expat, um, a little bit. Although I will say the tea that we did when I was a waitress was, um, a very grand, you know, uh, elaborate affair compared to my making a pot of tea and rushing back to my desk to, uh, continue typing away. So <laughs> a little bit of a different situation. So I was going to ask, because you're living in England now, do you make the time every day for a, a special pot of tea? I do. I do. I tend to drink it throughout the day. Um, but there are definitely certain times of day that I tend to stop around, you know, two, three o'clock. Um, I'll stop. I'll have a cup of tea. If it's beautiful like it was today, we're having an unseasonably warm day today. Um, I'll go and, and, you know, sit outside or go for a, for a walk with my cup of tea. But sometimes, unfortunately, it is kind of just grabbing it on the run to, to something else. So, <laughs> but I am very, I'm, I'm very ritualistic about it. Very good to know. Congratulations on a masterfully written and very complex novel. I'm referring, of course, those who missed the first couple of minutes, The Last Garden in England, uh, which I'm holding. A big thank you once again to Athena for sending me the book from Simon & Schuster. So I'm going to share a synopsis of the plot for those listening in today. Present day. Emma Lovett, who has dedicated her career to breathing life into long neglected gardens, has just been given the opportunity of a lifetime to restore the gardens of the famed Highbury House estate designed in 1907 by her hero, Venetia Smith. But as Emma dives deeper into the garden's past, she begins to uncover secrets that have long lain hidden. 1907, a talented artist with a growing reputation for her ambitious work, Venetia Smith has carved out a niche for herself as a garden designer to industrialists, solicitors, and bankers looking to show off their wealth with sumptuous country houses. When she is hired to design the gardens of Highbury House, she's determined to make them a triumph, but the gardens and the people she meets promise to change her life forever. 1944, when land girl Beth Headley arrives at a farm on the outskirts of the village of Highbury, all she wants is to find a place she can call home. 
Cook Stella Adderton, on the other hand, is desperate to leave Highbury House to pursue her own dreams. And widow Diana Simmons, the mistress of the Grand House, is anxiously trying to cling to her pre-war life now that her home has been requisitioned and transformed into a convalescent hospital sorry, for wounded soldiers. But when war threatens Highbury House's treasured gardens, these three very different women are drawn together by a secret that will last for decades. So this poignant, high concept and completely unforgettable novel tells the tale of five women living across three different time periods whose lives are all connected by one very special garden. Could you please discuss the idea for the novel and how it first came to you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for for saying such kind things about the book. Um, that is always lovely to hear as an author. Um, I first came up with this idea at some point uh, several years ago. I it's it was one of those things that I, I sort of had a grain of an idea that I wanted to write about a garden over different time periods connected where the, the narrative is all connected. So um, people wouldn't have necessarily met each other, but there would be some common theme. And I really hadn't figured it out any further than that. Um, about two years ago, my agent and I were on a call where I had pitched her a whole bunch of different books. We, we needed to pitch a book on my book contract and we're trying to figure out the right one. And I, you know, she and I talked and she said, you know, there's some good things here, but I, I just don't think they're there yet. I don't know that these books are quite, you know, quite what we want to pitch yet. Why don't you go back and, and just have a think about other things? And I said to her, you know, it's, it's so funny. There's this one book and I have no idea what it is, but I just have this idea about a garden. And I kind of explained to her as much as I had. And she said, well, that's great. Why didn't you just tell me that 45 minutes ago? <laughs> and um, So over that very quick, you know, end of the call, we ended up kind of figuring out the rough structure of the book, you know, it would be about the beginning of the, of the gardens creation, it would be about the gardens during World War II, and there would be characters that all interacted there. And then the gardens would have fell, fallen into disrepair, and essentially have been abandoned. And the present day storyline would be about bringing the gardens back to their former glory. And also in the process, kind of discovering the history of the gardens and all the secrets that lie uh, in in that uh, in that space um, over the years, and it just sort of developed from there. In some ways, it was it was a complex book to write, so it definitely took time and it took effort. And but sometimes you have a book that just kind of works. And this was one of those books. Once I figured out what I wanted to write about, and once I figured out how these three very different stories were all going to fit together, then I could go ahead and actually write the book. And writing it was a was a really, actually really pleasurable process, which it isn't always for every book. So I was very fortunate in this one. Thank you. Uh, for prospective writers, uh, because this book is quite complex with the different timelines, how long did it take you to write the book from start to finish? Well, let's see. So it took me a, probably a few weeks to get the pitch together. And so what I typically will do is write a synopsis, um, usually around three to seven pages. This was a little bit on the longer side um, because there's a lot going on. Uh, and so I, it took me a little while to even figure out how to present that um, because it is so complex and these stories weave in and out. 
Um, but once I had that, and once my editor signed off on it, I spent a good amount of time actually writing out every scene, just a rough uh, little blurb on a post-it note and sticking them to my kitchen wall so that I could see the entire book. Um, Cause I am in some ways a very visual person and I had different colored post-it notes for different timelines. And so I was able to kind of weave those together. And then I took them off the wall in uh, group them with their color and literally sat there and just pulled off the post-it notes. And I wrote the 1907 storyline first. And then I wrote the 1944 storyline because that builds on 1907. And then I wrote the present day storyline. So I essentially wrote three little novellas, little novellas, three longer novellas. And then I sat down and fortunately um, there's writing software that allows you to do this very easily. I was able to put everything back into place um, the way that I planted out on my wall and make sure that everything made sense um, continuity wise, that the the story felt balanced because with this, one of the challenges was making sure that there are five different point of view characters, three different timelines. I wanted to make sure it didn't feel like you just left somebody behind for a really long time and it took a while to get back to them. I wanted to make sure you felt like you were always moving forward with these characters. You were always learning something new, but you were seeing them relatively frequently as well. Well, congratulations. I think you you definitely achieved that because I, I didn't feel like, oh, I haven't heard about this character in in too many chapters. I feel like like we got um, a feel for each of the characters throughout the book. So congratulations on oh, that. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and it sounds to me almost a, a little bit like a movie, like you had storyboards for each of the stories, which is a very um, intriguing and great way to go at it. And I'm happy to hear you had some software to help you yes. piece it all together at the end. It was a big help. <laughs> great. Historical details are key to this novel. How did you go about conducting your research? Well, this is my third book written during World War II. Um, so that was helpful because you build on your previous knowledge from previous research, which is um, which is really, really useful. So I was able to go in with a basic working knowledge of rationing, which really helped with Stella's character because she's having to compose, you know, create meals for for the family at Highbury House out of what was available for rations. Um, I had some working knowledge of, uh, you know, um, what was going on during the war during 1944. And so I was able to use some of that. The Edwardian section in 1907 was a little bit of a departure because I've written, when I was uh, writing historical romances, I wrote in the Victorian era. And that's actually where I did all my academic study when I was a student. Um, so it was similar, but there are distinct differences between sort of 1885 and 1907. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I got those things right. So I did a lot of reading around um, a woman named Gertrude Jekyll, who was a late Victorian through sort of early 20th century um, garden designer and garden writer. And she's actually so influential that we still see her influence in English gardens um, to this day, sort of the very beautiful, soft, impressionistic um, colors that you think of when you think of a, a traditional English garden is really one of the things that she advocated for. Um, so getting to rely on some of her writing for some perspective was really helpful because for me, the biggest challenge with writing this book was taking a lot of knowledge that I sort of had casually picked up from helping my father in the garden and um, 
and then actually applying it to an actual garden with a gardener, not just one gardener, but two gardeners, because this, this story is framed by a 1907 and a present day gardener. So I really felt like I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly I wanted the gardens to look like, what would be period appropriate for the um, for the plantings and things like that. And then when Emma, the present day character, comes in and tries to recreate the garden and do the reconstruction, what would that actually look like and what things would she need to consider? Um, so it was it was a lot of fun and I, I really enjoyed it. I think I probably did a bit too much garden research, but um, now... Uh, I have a garden of my own, so I'm actually able to apply some of that that research um, that was very theoretical to my actual garden. So I'm really enjoying that. This is a very very recent development since uh, just since the book came out, actually. So wonderful. Uh, I, I remember as a little girl uh, working on a vegetable garden with my father. So those are nice memories. What was your gardening experience like uh, as a child? Well, my my dad is a really talented, um, enthusiastic amateur gardener, and he is a, a self-proclaimed Anglophile. Um, and so that extends to English gardens as well. So I grew up in Southern California in uh, in Los Angeles. And so he created these incredible English border gardens in the heat of Los Angeles, which is very, very different, as you can imagine. So he was having to adapt and, you know, work with slightly different plantings, different varieties of plants. But he he really created these gorgeous spaces. And I think a lot of that, a lot of the appreciation for gardens and um, roses in particular, because he's a, a very, very big fan of, of roses, David Austin roses in particular, um, that certainly came through from from my dad. And um, I actually dedicated the book to him as well um, because of that. So, but no, I, you know, as a kid, I, I loved kind of getting into the dirt and digging around and I had a little herb garden and I helped with the vegetable garden and things like that. It was really, it was really a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. And I have very fond memories of that. A very fond, very sunburnt memories of that. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, except for the sun, the sunburnt part. Exactly. Um, Without getting into too much detail about the book, uh, I will just mention that um, you do discuss uh, the crossing of roses, sort of mixing uh, different breeds uh, or hybrids of roses. Does, is that something people did then and still do now? Absolutely. I think that there are people who are far more botanically minded and um, talented at it than I would be. I wouldn't even know where to start except for the research that I did in in uh, in writing this book. But there's the the main character um, in 1907 is Venetia and she meets Matthew, who's the brother of um, of the owner's wife, uh, the owner of Highbury House's wife. And he is a passionate horticulturalist specializing in crossbreeding roses. And one of the ways that they bond is through going through the process of actually doing this. And he kind of, it's his opportunity to share something with her and they learn something about each other. So I, I love um, writing, and this has been consistent through all my books. I love writing kind of process scenes where somebody is doing something that's unusual or different that a reader might not necessarily know a huge amount about, but you can kind of set the dialogue and set um, any of the emotional points 
against the task that they're doing as well while describing that. And I find that to be a really fun challenge for me as an author. So I, I went down a little research rabbit hole of how do you crossbreed a rose? <laughs> and one of the, you know, talking about research, one of the interesting challenges for writing in 1907 was a lot of the roses that I remember from my childhood were not in existence at that point in time. So fortunately, again, there are people who are very passionate about these things. And there are websites that tell you the date of origin for a lot of roses. So everything that you see in 1907 was created before 1907, because I knew if I didn't get that right, I would end up with a reader who is the foremost um, expert on grandiflora roses from 19 something or another, and, and that would make them annoyed. So <laughs> I try to, I try my best. I know I'm not perfect at it. No author is, but I do try my best to be as accurate with researching those types of things as possible. Yeah, very nice. And kudos on doing that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so seeing as gardening is so central to the book, uh, and it is described in exquisite detail. How much of a green thumb are you? Well, we're finding out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I can honestly say yet, because a lot of it has been, um, again, side by side with my father, who has a lot, lot of experience um, on me. But I did have a very, very small container garden while I was writing this book. Um, you know, a few roses, a clematis, you know, some kitchen herbs. Um, I tried some things out. I grew, you know, potatoes and, and um, dwarf beans, which you can grow in a small trough. And it was very, very limited space, but um, it let me kind of experiment. And I think one of the things I, I've enjoyed about gardening so far is its unpredictability, which I'm sure can be very frustrating at the same time for a lot of people. Um, but it's kind of fun to see what works and what doesn't work. And you think you know why, you know, you're, get, you're getting seeds to sprout in this particular area, but not this other one. And, you know, you try things out and um, nature is inherently unpredictable. So um, we're going to find out in a year how I do um, with this, with this new garden, with all the experiments I'm putting into it. Okay. We'll have to check in with you again to see where you're at in a year. Exactly. More or less. In terms of writing style, how easy or difficult was it to manage these three timelines in the same book? It was kind of fun, actually. Um, and I, it, it was a lot of work, but at the same time, it kept things very fresh. Um, so I don't know if, if I'm sure I'm not unique in this, but there are times during writing a book where you think, I've been in the middle of this book for a very long time. <laughs> um, and having three timelines and three timelines written like novellas in and of themselves meant I got kind of this lovely sense of being, even though the book wasn't done, at least it was kind of more complete um, when I could, you know, tie up a timeline, set it aside and go on to work on the next one. And it really did help because it's not a small book. Um, and it's not a simple book either. Um, I think it helped keep me motivated. Is there a time period you preferred working on? You know, I really enjoyed World War II um, because it's such a fascinating time for women, which is, you know, I, I am very unashamed about saying that I write uh, women's stories because I think there are a lot of stories that we don't know um, that are still being told from the war and, uh, and so stories that I'm sure are lost, unfortunately, because 
no one asked or recorded um, what those stories were. But I think one of the things I really enjoy the most is when a reader says, you know, I didn't know about uh, the ACAC girls who worked on the anti-aircraft guns, which was what my first novel was about. I didn't know about women who worked in convalescent hospitals. I didn't even know about requisitioned homes um, or the land girls or, you know, just different things that, um, that are feel a little bit new and a little bit undiscovered. Um, so I, I feel very lucky to get to tell those stories out of World War II. I will say there are a lot of eras I'm really, really interested in, and I'm hoping to have a long, healthy career so I can write about a lot of those different things. Um, but uh, but it's, been, it's been really fun writing about uh, the first half of the 20th century so far. No, we, we wish that for you as well, of course. Thank you. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about the um, the fact that homes were being requisitioned? This this was a very interesting concept to me. I think I've seen it in films, but mm-hmm. wasn't really that familiar with it or hadn't seen it in books. One of the um, interesting kind of pop culture touch points that some people have for this uh, for this book and this idea of requisitioned homes is um, Downton Abbey. The second season, the the houses. Uh, becomes a convalescent hospital in World War One rather than World War II. Um, so my parents live in the UK now, and they are in an area of the UK that had a lot of large homes, uh, these kind of big houses that Highbury House would have been one of them. Um, I also mentioned Hidcote Manor, um, which is an actual garden I did research at, um, but it's also, it appears in the book. So these large, large homes uh, were taken over um, by the government. Uh, under government order. Um, And if they were suitable for some form of use during the war, uh, they were essentially, um, people were politely but firmly told (laughs) what their home was going to be. So in some cases, uh, you had convalescent hospitals, like I show in the book. Um, You had schools from cities move into homes, uh, orphanages, maternity wards. In some cases, there were, um, you know, training uh, and operational um, headquarters. The most famous, of course, being Bletchley Park, where um, the code breaking was done, uh, the Enigma code breaking. So, you know, they were looking for these large scale homes, large spaces. but on a smaller scale and something I didn't get to examine um, during the course of this book, but I would love to go back to one day is the smaller homes that were requisitioned, including my parents' home. Um, so that uh, house is, uh, you know, not not a grand English country estate, uh, but it became the barracks for a group of uh, women's auxiliary officers for uh, the uh, Air Force, for the RAF. Um, So they were called the WAFs. And so apparently um, we had WAFs staying in the house uh, during part of the war. And and I kind of enjoy the idea that this, you know, again, these smaller houses would have still been put into use and, um, and would have kind of in their own way helped contribute to the war effort. Very interesting. I'm sure each of us will have a favorite character among your leading ladies. Uh, once everyone gets to read the book, of course. Of course. Uh, mine was Venetia uh, because she seemed like such a trailblazer and ahead of her time. Do you have a favorite and why? I do. And I feel a little guilty saying that I have a favorite because I spent so much time writing about these people. But I really um, enjoyed writing Diana. 
um, who is the owner of Highbury House. I, Beth, I think, is the character that I probably most naturally gravitate towards. And my editor at the time um, very kindly said, uh, you know, Beth is a real Julia Kelly character. And I thought, ooh, I like that. Um, but, you know, Vin uh, Diana, rather, she is a bit of a tough cookie. She's um, a, a war widow and she has had her home essentially invaded. She's not happy about it, but she feels a duty and a responsibility in some ways that comes out in a different way than her sister-in-law, who's the commandant of the hospital um, and who's a bit of a thorn in her side. So I really enjoyed writing Diana because I know not everybody is going to be sympathetic towards her. She's a tough character. She can be prickly. Um, she's kind of holding on to the past. But I felt like when I kind of got around to really digging in and getting to know what her character was like and what she was motivated by and what she wanted, which is something that you always try to, to instill in all your characters is giving them a motivation that explains why they make the decisions that they make. Um, I thought she was really interesting and, and kind of a different, a different take on what, um, you know, how women might've felt or um, approached sort of war work and, and, and life during that time. Along the same lines, there are characters that either act in a way that can be cringeworthy or make decisions that are hard to swallow. For me, Diana and Stella first come to mind, each for completely different reasons. Uh, was this intentional and do you feel it added to their complexities as individuals? Yeah, so I wanted to make sure I wrote some characters who didn't have all the answers and who didn't always act in a way that was completely noble. Um, and I think, I hope in the end that readers understand why they make the decisions that they make. And um, one very large decision in particular that I cannot talk about unless it's, uh, it's going to be a huge spoiler for the book, but I think um, they're motivated by certain things and they, they understand themselves well enough at the end of the book that they understand that the decisions, I'm being very careful now, the, deci the decisions <laughs> that they make um, are important uh, to other people as well. And they're trying to do the best thing that they can do, even if we don't necessarily share their own feelings about things. I'm hoping that I, that's vague enough. Yes, enough. <laughs> yes I, I don't wanna give anything away either, uh, but I do feel that even though I was annoyed or displeased with certain characters throughout the book they did all grow throughout the book so so I will give them know. that <laughs> several major themes are central to the storyline of this book one of them being a woman's role in society was it important to you to address the differences and similarities of this role throughout different time periods Absolutely. Um, so I'm fascinated by women's place in society, especially when that collides with class. And so um, Venetia is in a bit of a unique situation. She's a gentleman's daughter, but she's also a woman making her own way in the world with a profession. And that puts her in a strange situation where she's not the hired help at this house, but she's also not a member of the family or a guest in the family's home. And it's a very, very interesting space to occupy. Um, I think often governesses often also occupied a similar space where they had, you know, some level of gentility about them, but they were certainly being paid for their work, but they sometimes would be, you know, allowed things that 
servants wouldn't be allowed. So they weren't servants, but they weren't members of the family. I've always been interested in women who occupy that space. Um, I think when it comes to 1944, that's the place where I wanted to look at class kind of the most closely because you have three different women from three different backgrounds. So Stella is a servant. Diana is obviously a, a, a landed uh, a, a landowner. She's not nobility, but she's um, absolutely a, a woman of, of the uh, the upper classes. And then Beth is kind of a, a a working class girl. Her um, her family owned a farm before she was orphaned, and then she was taken in by her aunt. But she has this sort of um, sense that she doesn't really belong in one particular place in the world because her aunt is very clear. She took her in out of obligation more than anything else. And so Beth is kind of um, a bit of an audience surrogate. She in introduces us into this world um, through her eyes, but she's also probably the one who's the most able to navigate the different social classes um, that are all around this, this requisitioned home. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to write about a convalescent hospital is it gives you so many opportunities to put people of different classes together. Um, so you had soldiers from all across, uh, you know, the, the spectrum of class, you have the family that owns the home, you have the servants who still were serving if they weren't, um, you know, off uh, doing war work or or fighting, uh, and so it it kind of provides this opportunity to look at the different ways that people um, that people kind of interact with each other, how class um, forms a woman's role, what it allows her to do, the freedom that she does or does not have, um, and and so I think that was particularly interesting. And then. In present day, Emma, you know, of course, class is very, very much so present in uh, in England today, as it is in so many societies. Um, but with her, I was more interested in her sort of as an independent business owner and the pressures that that put on her, um, how that made her who she was and how she kind of held herself or held herself apart from the world. Um, and so with, with Emma, I kind of was interested in exploring how she grows and finds a place for herself within a group of people within a community. I liked how uh, Emma works for herself in the book, but she's also pulled to, oh, the allure of the stability of a job that has a regular paycheck and has a pension and all that. I thought that was very realistic for someone who's, <laughs> who has their own business. Uh, so you, you talked about this a little bit, but, but my next question did pertain to class. So the issue of class is also front and center, regardless of which timeline you're dealing with, 1907, 1944, and present day. Was it your intention to demonstrate how little has changed in the relationship between employer and employee from 1907 to present day or not? Or what do you think about this? Well, it, it was. And so I'll, I'll talk about present day since I address the other two. You know, Emma is a girl who's very aware that she's um, sort of working class background. Her family's done well since she's been a child and her parents are, are comfortable and they're urging her to, you know, buy a home in Croydon where she's from. And um, I can tell you living in London right now, Croydon is cheaper than other parts of London, but it's still London. So it's not inexpensive. <laughs> uh, so she, she certainly is very aware that she doesn't fit the class of um, Sydney and her husband, Andrew, who at, at one point very early in the book, 
book, she talks about them kind of being the golden couple who went to good schools and, you know, had riding lessons and, you know, maybe played cricket for the county and things like that. It's, it's a bit of a different, um, it's a different upbringing. And I think that people are aware of that. Um, I, as an expat, I uh, feel like I'm aware of it sometimes um, less than other people are. And I'm sort of learning some of the, the signals and signs. There are some things I'm just never going to understand. <laughs> I've sort of reconciled <laughs> myself to that. Um, but it certainly is interesting. And as an author, it's interesting watching that unfold. So one of the things that I think Emma um, feels very strongly is that she is the employee for this project um, of Sydney. And she kind of holds herself off a little bit at first. And she, you get the sense that she's, or I hope you get the sense, that she's sort of very intent on being very professional, doing her job really well, picking up stakes and going to the next job. Um, because she does these large scale projects, she's in a space for a little bit of time and she maybe has the opportunity to get to know people, but that might open up the possibility that there's this uncomfortable situation where she's employed by somebody, but they're friends and all this. And of course, Sydney is a bit of a, you know, irrepressible chipper, kind person. And she just finally wears Emma down relatively early in the book. And Emma starts to kind of through cups of tea and pub quiz nights and things like that, um, starts to realize that actually she really likes this person and she likes this life in, in Highbury. And maybe there's something here that she uh, would have dismissed before. So um, there, she changes her attitude a little bit. Yes, I think we do get the sense that she she warms up to her employee. At first, she's very distant, but then they, they do become closer. Uh, each of your heroines, uh, Venetia, Beth, Diana, Stella, and Emma, is in a sort of transplant uh, to Highbury House. Can you discuss how each of them found their home in Highbury? Yeah, no, no big surprise that the expat writes a book where everybody's finding home in the middle. <laughs> and I think um, in some ways, um, my last book, The Whispers of War, I, I also did a little bit of exploring kind of identity and home um, through the story of a, of a German expat during World War II. Um, and in that case, the, the very real threat of internment. But that's another story for another day. Um, with this one, you know, I have always been interested in found families. Um, my formative years uh, in my 20s in New York, um, I was very far away from my parents and my sort of uh, home base in Los Angeles. And so I felt like having those really important friendships was even more important because um, that was a way to create a family around me. And so I've always been interested in writing about friendships, the dynamics of friendships, um, even instances where maybe the, maybe looking at it on the surface, you wouldn't call Diana, Stella, and uh, Beth's relationship a friendship, but I think something de develops there, and that's important to kind of explore um, as well. So I really wanted to um, kind of get at different aspects of what home meant for these women. And I think for Beth, it very clearly means a home, but it also means those friendships. For Diana, it's the physical home of Highbury House. Venetia needs to kind of figure out what that looks like for her. And I think for her, that's um, expressed best through people. For Stella, home is a very, you know, she doesn't want to be in her home anymore. She's She's been born and raised in Highbury House. She has grander ambitions for herself that do get stifled along the way. Um, but her idea of home is something that she hasn't seen yet. 
And for Emma, again, it's that, that sense of, you know, um, reconciling what she wants with this draw towards this community. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun to write it and, and just, you know, explore those different aspects of what home might mean to somebody and how that can really manifest in people. Yeah, thank you. Can you discuss how each of these women breaks from expectation in order to pursue her ambitions? Well, I, I really like writing about women who, even if they're doing it quietly, um, kind of defy what's expected of them uh, and, and create their own path. Um, so certainly I think Venetia is probably the most obvious example of that. She really is a, a pioneer in the same way that Gertrude Jekyll was a pioneer, the woman who I, I did so much research about, um, before writing this character and they're not the same person, but there's certainly tones of, of that person in, uh, in Venetia. When it comes to the other characters, I think by the nature of the land girls, that was a very unusual uh, role for a lot of women to be taking up. So the land girls essentially um, were the the women's land army, uh, which was a collection of women who were sent off across the country to do the agricultural work that was vacated when men went off to war because of conscription. And this was actually something that as a woman, you could be conscripted to do as well, because conscription came in uh, relatively early in the war. And so with the Women's Land Army, you have women who are doing all the work of farming. They're plowing, you know, with tractors, they're lambing, they're, you know, planting out and, and you know, doing the really tough manual labor that went along with that. And so I think that in and of itself is very unusual. Um, and then, you know, Diana, Diana is making it on her own. She's an independent woman. She's a widow. Um, she, in some ways, one of the reasons I find her so admirable is I think her, she is grieving, but there is still a sense that she is a woman in her own right. And in fact, throughout the course of the book, she sort of rediscovers what it means to be herself as an individual rather than the wife of her husband. Um, and Stella's kind of got her own, her own ideas of what she wants to do and her, her attitudes. I think Emma's probably the least, um, obviously trailblazing, although I think anybody who decides to have a small business is just absolutely, you know, breaking the mold. Um, she does something that is, you get the sense that she could have, you know, gone the route that her parents wanted to, her to go. She could have, you know, maybe become a solicitor or done something kind of in a, in a white collar job. But this is what she wanted to do. She wanted to become a garden designer and she wanted to work, um, you know, at this very, very real skill. And there's a lot of artistry that that's um, in, in gardens as well and, and designing gardens. And she feels really strongly about that. So she kind of carves out her own path in defiance of her mother in particular, who's not the most understanding <laughs> person, but they, you know, they can kind of learn to see eye to eye a little bit. Earlier, we talked about which uh, time period uh, you preferred writing about. Um, now, if you had a time machine in front of you and you could visit 1907 or 1944 from your book, which would it be? You know, I think it would be really fascinating to visit 1907 um, because in some ways it is so, it's the time before things truly started to change. So it's before World War. World War. Um, the remnants of the Victorian era are still there. Obviously, the clothing is very, very different. Uh, the lifestyle is very different. I think in 1944, there's more 
um, it would have been very difficult, obviously, um, visiting visiting England in 1944 um, with rationing and, and various other things. I do think it would be fascinating to be a fly on the wall of a convalescent hospital and just to understand the different dynamics. And there's whole stories that I could have written about the nursing staff and the doctors and the soldiers, and it, it didn't fit into this story. The story was really about these these three women in 1944, but that absolutely could have been its own story in its own right. So I think it would have been it would have been really interesting to visit. But I do think it would be a great opportunity to see England in uh, right after the turn of the 20th century. Can you discuss how uh, certain women in your book uh, navigate motherhood and how expectations of motherhood uh, shift from different time periods uh, to the present day? How have society's expectations around motherhood changed um, and how have they stayed the same? Sorry, it's a big question. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the best way to tackle it. Um, so, you know, I think motherhood is, is, was a theme that I very specifically did want to write about because each woman in her own way sort of touches on what it means to be a mother, if they want to be a mother, all of those things. Um, and again, I'm going to have to be very, very careful with this one without, you know, exposing too much. But I think probably the most interesting character to me in in this, um, with this question would actually be Stella. Um, Stella is, again, wants to break free of, you know, this life in service. She's trying to take correspondence courses. She's taking her time away from her job as the cook at this house in order to, um, to try to carve out a different life for herself. And very, very early on in the book, her sister, um, Joan, I believe her name is. I have to admit that I am that author who sometimes forgets the names of her own characters, but Joan. It is Joan. <laughs> great, wonderful. Um, so Joan shows up at the door, the kitchen door of Highbury House and says, I need you to take your nephew. Um, it was a common thing for children to be evacuated at the beginning of the war. And then often a lot of those children went back. So that's the backstory of this little boy. And um, Stella is sort of forced into this situation where she has to care for this child and she loves her nephew, but she doesn't know how to be a mother to him. And that's what he really needs. And she finds it very, very difficult reconciling herself to the guilt of not being able to provide the love, the maternal love that she feels she should naturally have towards a child, but she just doesn't. And I think, um, we often read stories about, you know, women who who are mothers or who want to be mothers. I think it's really interesting um, taking a little bit of time to look at the story of a woman who doesn't want to be a mother, who wants to have something else with her life and has been put into a situation where she has to fill at least some of the responsibilities of that role and what that does to her and, and what it does to her knowing that at some point this child is going to be aware of the situation. He's very young, but he's also very intelligent. And I think kids are very intelligent. They, they come on to, you know, realizing certain things um, faster than people realize. And so for her, it's, it's a very difficult, um, very difficult thing and very difficult to reconcile herself to all these kind of conflicting emotions she's going through. Okay. 
while Venetia's career was exceptional for her time period, uh, World War II forced many women in 1944 to work when they otherwise might not have had the opportunity to pursue a trade. How did the war impact the lives of Beth, Diana, Stella, Cynthia, and um, the lives that they were able? Yes, yeah. sorry, the lives that they were able to lead. I think the war offered incredible opportunities to some women. Um, I think it would have been very, very difficult for a lot of women. Um, women who were exempted from uh, you know, conscription comes into place. And at first, it's only women of a certain age and a certain marital status. Um, and then it starts opening up more and more. And this happens with men also. You know, the, the group that gets pulled in for conscription gets broader and broader as they have more and more need for soldiers. Um, so with, with the women in, um, in England and, and in these books, I think the war offers this really unique opportunity to do things that they may not have been able to do before. Um, so whether it's women who worked in munitions factories or went and, um, you know, as in the case of, of my heroine in uh, The Light of London, actually were on the, the anti-aircraft guns and they did everything but pull the trigger on the guns because that was a step too far, uh, women actually being in active combat. But they were in incredible danger and they were highly trained, incredibly intelligent women. Um, Beth is sent to agricultural college, which may not have been um, an opportunity that she would have necessarily had coming out of you know the town life that she had. Um, and she gets thrown into this world and finds she really thrives and really um, enjoys the independence, enjoys the camaraderie with the other girls, enjoys the sense of purpose that she has. Um, and I think that that was really important for a lot of women. And I, you do see, of course, an opening up of more and more jobs and more and more areas of society um, when it came to employment for women in, in the decades after that. And of course, we're now to a point where um, most of employment is, is open to women, if not um, every single job. Uh, so I think it was a real turning point. And it's one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in World War II is I really like these turning points in um, society where either um, you know, a social and class revolution is happening. Um, you know, women's position in society changes. You know, their their rights change. Um, you know, a sexual revolution happens, and I I think within World War II you actually get all of those things. It's a class revolution. It's a gender revolution. It's a it's a sex revolution with, um, you know, very quick hasty marriages and and some um, extramarital affairs as well happening, and a loosening of society, um, and a loosening of a lot of the constraints that people would have felt. Uh, congratulations on a beautiful book. So here it is, The Last Garden in England. So before uh, we move on to questions from the audience, if there are any, I'm just going to ask if you can give us a little preview of your next project. I can indeed. Um, so I'm writing a book. Uh, I'm editing a book, I should say, called The Last Dance of the Deb Debutante. Uh, it is about the last um, class of debutantes to be uh, presented before Queen Elizabeth in 1958. Uh, the season went on after that, but the actual presentation stopped. So this is the very elaborate curtsy and um, very formal presentation at court that would have happened. And my main character is a 
a young woman who feels um, a lot of pressure to become a debutante because there is familial pressure there. There's some family backstory about why um, it is particularly important for her family that she be a successful debutante and have um, a a real shot at um, kind of showing that they are re-entering into society. Um, but at the same time, it's a period of time with a lot of change. And so she meets uh, several different people throughout this book who pull her in both directions. So she has a woman who sort of tries to take her under her wing, um, who's very much the sort of popular Deb of the year type. Uh, and then she also has a friend who is doing the season because it's important to her parents. And then she has every intention of going off, getting a job and living her own life. And so it makes her question what it is that she really wants um, out of uh, out of her season and and it forces her to kind of um, come to terms with her own identity and then through that of course um, through some family mysteries and various other things that are <laughs> revealed um, because it wouldn't be one of my books if there weren't some of those um, she finds herself really questioning everything that she knows about her life so far um, it's been an absolute blast to write it and I'm really really enjoying um, getting to do something a little bit later in the 20th century in 1958. Um, and if you like the Last Garden in England's book cover, um, on my website, juliakellywrites.com, The Last Dance of the Debutante may be my favorite book cover I've ever had. It is absolutely beautiful. And um, I, I just, uh, I think this book is going to be something really special. So I hope readers, readers enjoy it too. I have to finish it. So that's the caveat. <laughs> it's not done yet, but... Sounds like it will be great and we're looking forward to it and uh, we will definitely check out the cover. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you so much, Julia. It's been uh, a pleasure chatting with you. Let me just see um, what's happening here with our audience because I believe uh, we have some chats. Uh, someone from the audience is saying cars were also requisitioned, I believe. Yes, a lot, a lot could be requisitioned. Um, cars, agricultural land. Um, I don't know if it happened so much in World War II, but in World War I, um, horses were requisitioned and sent off uh, for the war effort as well. Um, so really, it, it truly was across a lot of areas of society um, that, that possessions um, came, into, uh, came into play. Another question in our Q&A uh, from the audience is, uh, do you have to like gardening to enjoy this book? No, no, not at all. Um, so one of the, my um, first notes that I got from my editor was there's too much gardening in this book because I went way overboard <laughs> with the research. So I did want to make sure that the, the book was going to be absolutely accessible regardless of whether you enjoy gardening or not. My hope is that when you read it, it's just a really good story and it is set against a garden that is a character in and of itself but you absolutely do not need to know anything about the technical side of gardening or anything like that in order to enjoy it i would second that um i am not much of a gardener and i love the book <laughs> so definitely i welcome you all who are listening to read the book and don't be threatened by the idea that you have to be a great gardener to read it no not at all you don't even have to be a gardener <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, I'm just trying to Not at all. see if I can let someone speak here. Just a moment. Esther, are you here? 
I don't know if you want to talk to me. <laughs> Esther, uh, your hand was raised. Did you have a question oh, for Julia? I, I, I pressed the hand before I realized I could do the Q&A. So I, I didn't, uh, my question was answered. Okay, thank you, Esther. Thank you very much. Thank you thank for you. asking and thank you for watching. Oh, sorry about that, Esther. So we have another question here from uh, Debbie. Uh, Debbie, are you able to ask your question? Yes, actually, I have comments and a question. I'm sorry I haven't read your book yet, but I definitely will. I just recently took a course called The Stately House, and it was all about the homes in England, all the different sizes, and we did go through a large amount of information regarding the gardens and Gertrude Jekyll and Calamity Brown, and they were so very beautiful. Did you visit some of the gardens uh, before writing the book? I did. I was very fortunate um, that I, so this book is set in Warwickshire, which is the county that my parents live in. So it made for very, very convenient research. Um, I was very lucky that I, um, in, let's see, it would have been the summer of 2019. Um, I have to think back in the timeline. Um, I was able to go to Hidcote Manor, which is incredibly beautiful. Um, I believe that's in Chipping Camden. Um, and that's really the basis for what I modeled Highbury House after. It's on a much grander scale. Highbury House was more contained, but it has these beautiful garden rooms that have themes as you move from, from space to space. So for instance, I have a lover's garden in Highbury, Highbury House that is directly based on the red border in um, in Hidcote Manor. So I was able to draw some real life inspiration from that. Um, and then I also went to two other places. Um, one is called Upton House, which is beautiful and was also requisitioned during the war and has an interesting history in and of, its, uh, in and of itself. And then I went to a place called Kiffsgate Court, uh, which is known for this absolutely enormous rambling rose that smothered three trees, and I think it's still going. Um, but the reason that I mention it is that it is um, famous for not just the rose, but having been uh, gardened by three generations of women. Oh. Some themes going there as well. Um, and it was really a, a, a real lovely, lovely time walking through those spaces. And my, my dad came with me. He appointed himself a research assistant for this, uh, for this book. Um, so it was a lot of fun to, to go through and, and, you know, have him sharing knowledge with me and then also seeing things uh, firsthand. It was also very interesting to find out that gardeners are... Um, would have had their jobs for 30 and 40 years, that it was an honored occupation, as opposed to what we often think of as a gardener. <laughs> and um, yeah, the design and the, the knowledge that they had, it, it was extraordinary. They were such important members of the household because they really, especially the head gardener, um, as yes. you say, had an incredible amount of knowledge and, you know, would keep their position for a very long time because um, they knew the ins and outs of, of this particular estate. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think something that, as you say, we don't really think about today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I think you may be on mute, Danielle. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I was checking the Q&A, so I didn't want you to hear my mouse clicking. Uh, but I see another question popped up from Jana. How much editing do you do on your book? How many iterations? 
Well, I, my uh, weirdness is that I love the editing process. Uh, <laughs> I think it comes from, again, having been a journalist back to the beginning of our conversation, I really, really enjoy being edited and also editing myself as well. Um, so typically what happens on a book is I'll write a first draft and then I'll go through and do an edit on that. I do hold off on editing until I finish the book itself um, because I find editing is a wonderful procrastination tool. Um, so I do have to be careful with that. Um, so I'll send that kind of um, some somewhat polished first draft over to my editor. They'll do what's called a developmental edit. Um, and that means that they give kind of big picture things, you know, this is working, this isn't working. Can you strengthen this person's motivation here? Let's raise the stakes um, for this aspect of the book. And so I'll go back and that's actually what I'm doing right now for the last dance of the debutante. I'm in that developmental edit. So that's really big picture, holistic stuff. And then it gets a little bit more granular and we do what's called a line edit where they're literally going in and changing language and suggesting, you know, let's have this uh, happen earlier. Can you move this up in the paragraph? Um, and then it goes into what's called production, which is copy editing and then proofreading as well. And by that point in time, I've read the book probably 14 times and, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. <laughs> so fortunately, <laughs> there are very, very um, talented proofreaders that go through and, you know, catch all of the typos and any inconsistencies. Um, I once had a character uh, in an early draft change eye color three times. Um, so little things like that, I'm now much better about keeping track of, but it is uh, something that that they do double check for. And um, then the book comes out. So it's it's about an 18 month process from start to finish for me, um, unless I get a, an early jump on things. Another question just came up in the chat. Uh, thank you. That was wonderful. Um, our guest says, and thank you, it was. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, what is the rhythm of your writing? Do you write every day, all day? Sorry if I missed uh, that. No, not at all. So I still have a day job which means that I write whenever I can. Um, and that's usually a pretty good rule for, for balancing the day job and writing. Um, so I will most often uh, write after dinner. I'll sort of use cooking dinner as a way to break up um, the time between my, my day job and I'll kind of unwind a little bit by cooking and then uh, launch into writing. And I, I typically will write for sort of two to three hours a night um, I try to hold off on working on weekends until I get really into sort of the last month of a deadline. And then often I'll, I'll be working sort of full tilt um, whenever I can. At the moment, um, I am doing a little bit of work in the mornings and then um, a lot of work in the evenings. Um, but I do find that consistency is really helpful for me. I'm a runner as well. And if I go and I run every day or every, well, not every day, but if I run consistently um, each week, a certain number of times a week, um, I find it much, much easier to go out the next time and the next time and the next time. And I find uh, writing is like that as well. If I sit down and write, the next day it's easier to write and easier to write. And so I do try to um, keep that habit alive because it really is hard to get started again when you, when for me at least, when I fall off of the, off of the habit. So Julia, if I got this correctly, you have a day job, you cook, you <laughs> write for a few hours and you run. I <laughs> All do. All the same day if you can. 
all in the same day. I usually am running over my lunch break. So uh, that's, that's the help. And I will say that one of the few silver linings of the pandemic has been um, there's a lot of concentrated time um, where I am at home in the evenings where normally I would have been out and about a little bit more. So that has been helpful. I also like staying busy, which helps. So. <laughs> if someone was also wondering the same thing as me. So you would have been asked regardless how you get all of these <laughs> things done in, in one day. So again, we congratulate you on, on your ambition and, and on this beautiful book. And uh, we're very much looking forward to your next one. And hopefully we'll be able to have you back. Um, whether it's virtually or not, we will see. Uh, but a big, big thank you, uh, Julia, for taking time uh, this evening for you and this afternoon for us to speak about uh, The Last Garden in England. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the, the questions as well to, to both you and the audience as well. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Coat St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.